Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. I hope all of you are having a great week and hard to believe tomorrow is Friday. And for those of us who are living in the United States, a week from today we'll be celebrating uh, Thanksgiving. But of course, uh, we should all be reminded that uh, when we celebrate Thanksgiving, it it doesn't always have to be confined uh, to the month of uh, November. I'm always being reminded of the fact that um, years ago, well before um, all of us in the present uh, came around, uh, that people, most notably in colonial America, celebrated Thanksgiving at various uh, different times of the year. And it wasn't just uh, people coming together and having a turkey. As a matter of fact, uh, historians know that in uh, colonial times, uh, most notably in uh, colonial Virginia's history, that uh, people were known to um, celebrate Thanksgiving um, feasts uh, for various reasons. Uh, Number one, to celebrate a great harvest. Number two, might have been to to, uh, celebrate the end of a drought. I know what you're thinking. Why would you want to celebrate a drought, the end of a drought, that is? Well, droughts can do lots of uh, harmful things in terms of damaging crops to uh, not yielding enough uh, water. So when a drought did end, uh, that was something for people to celebrate and be thankful for that perhaps uh, misery from a weather standpoint uh, was coming to an end. So we have to keep in mind constantly that just because there's Thanksgiving holiday in the month of uh, November for those of us living in the United States, uh, we do need to be reminded that um, those who came before us celebrated Thanksgiving in a lot of other ways besides just sitting down and having uh, turkey and all the other uh, fixins that go um, that go with the um, main dish. As a matter of fact, I think all of us, uh, regardless of where wherever we may live in the world, need to be constantly thankful not only for what we have, but um, but just in a sense to be thankful um, with regards to being alive. That's just my take on it. But uh, but it is hard to believe that in a week from today, uh, here in the United States, um, we will be celebrating Thanksgiving. As a matter of fact, uh, Thanksgiving uh, wasn't declared an official federal holiday in the United States until about 1863. So yes, people celebrated it, and they celebrated it, celebrated it at uh, different times of the year, but, but it wasn't until 1863, not long after President Abraham Lincoln gave his uh, famous speech at uh, Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, uh, that uh, Thanksgiving did go about becoming um, a federal holiday uh, before 1863 ended. Well, here we are again uh, focusing on the other side of the night, uh, the Carpathia, the Californian, and the night the Titanic was lost. Well, in this uh, podcast segment, we are going to be focusing on the actions of the Californian, most notably the actions that uh, took place in the hours Just after midnight of April 15, 1912, we are going to learn some things about Californian's captain that are, um, well, I won't give it all away, but I'll just say as of right now that are not so great. And of course, I'm sure many of you are thinking, what do you mean by not so great? Well, we have to find that out. But in order to find that out, we've got to go behind the scenes and learn everything there is possible. So our uh, first... Lead-off question, 
for this uh, podcast segment is going to be the following. Was Californian Captain Stanley Lord still awake just after midnight, April the 15th, 1912? Yes, Captain Lord had finished giving orders for 2nd Officer Herbert Stone, whom would be replacing 3rd Officer Victor Groves in commanding the ship's middle watch duties. Captain Lord uh, followed upon he followed up on second officer stone's observations regarding a steamer not far away in the distance lord himself made out that steamer in the distance was almost a beam now when i when you hear the word a beam that's spelled a b e a m does anybody want to take a guess at what the word a beam means uh, it has a couple of different uh, meanings but the uh, meaning or interpretation that I came upon has to do with uh, the following that uh, when you hear the word a beam that means opposite opposite of the middle in this case this uh, mystery ship was the uh, was opposite of the middle to where Californian had currently held its ground Stanley Lord was had also observed open field ice around his ship Okay, so Captain Lord, it, it seems like maybe as of right now, he's off to a little bit of a good start in realizing that there is a ship not far away in the distance. Um, he does know that there is ice, field ice, around his ship, so he's not going to take any chances in doing something reckless, uh, given that they've already docked. Um, they've uh, put a ground for the time being which isn't bad compared to what that other ship in the distance has experienced or um, undertook, and and we now know that there are um, that there are ramifications already um, taking place. Captain Lord and Second Officer Stone observed ship in the distance displaying her red side light, being that of her port, including a single masthead light with some smaller lights, as well as displaying many deck lights. The glow of the distant ship's lights was very bright, to where she could be seen five to six miles out. We, we do have to keep in mind that this was a very, very clear night. Uh, that is the night of April 14th, uh, going into the um, morning hours after midnight of April 15th, 1912. It was a clear night. Uh, stars were very bright. Uh, the waters were calm. It was just something very unusual. But he, but yet it is happening. So Stanley Lord is has given uh, Second Officer Herbert Stone instructions to notify him if the ship nearby changed her direction or course or got further closer. All right, well, there again, I think Captain Lord is off to somewhat of a good start. I mean, he is providing proper instructions. He's made some observations. And I'm sure some of us are thinking, what in the world could he do so unfathomably wrong? Well, we will be getting there soon, folks. Believe me, we will. Did Californian's apprentice officer visibly spot something different about the ship lurking nearby in the distance. Yes, James Gibson, who was the apprentice officer, he focused his glasses so well 
where he could literally see up close firsthand that the ship nearby had in fact made a sharp turn. This sharp turn was one that resulted in the mystery ship turning to, um, the sharp turn was to the starboard on its right side, facing forward towards the Californian herself. Second Officer Stone, including Third Officer Victor Groves, each tried contacting the distant ship by Morse lamp with no solid luck. Second Officer Stone instructed Apprentice Officer Gibson to set up a new log line. The log line is a device that measures a ship's speed. Not only does it um, measure the ship's speed, but it's also a means of updating the current speed per the journal records. I don't think they're trying to brush um, Apprentice Officer um, James Gibson to the side, and it, and I know that they're obviously not taking anything lightly or dismissing it, but at the same time, there is a chain of command. Yes, uh, Apprentice Officer uh, James Gibson can certainly let um, the second and third officers know what he has spotted, but the second and third officers have greater leverage of making a call that either warrants the attention of the captain or um, keep it on an elevated level where they still need to be vigilant of what's uh, surrounding them before the next thing happens that would obviously need to make them uh, go the next step by advising, uh, in this case, Captain Lord, that something's, you know, apparently not right. At 12.40 a.m., Captain Lord called the second officer, Herbert Stone, to ask if the other ship came closer. Stone said it did not. Lord said he would be resting for a bit. But at 11.50 p.m. on April the 14th, the lookout bell in Titanic's crow's nest rung once. Okay, when the lookout bell in the Titanic's crow's nest, when it rang once, that, that meant a ship was spotted nearby. When a bell rings three times, that meant um, that there was um, a warning of something um, perilous um, ahead. Uh, which obviously was the iceberg, but in this case, with the uh, crow's nest bell ringing once, this means that a ship has been spotted nearby. Titanic's uh, fourth officer, um, Boxhall, confirmed that a ship was from was on the horizon about 10 to 12 miles away. Boxhall, officer Boxhall, went about attempting to uh, contact the ship via Morse lamp. And at 12.15 a.m., Jack Phillips sent out a CQD, the first one. And, of course, at 12.15, that was when uh, Jack Phillips sent, when he sent out that CQD, uh, that was when uh, Harold Cottom of Carpathia had picked up on the, um, on the uh, distress call. Now, uh, did a fellow by the name of George Rowe serve aboard Titanic? Yes, he did. He served as the ship's uh, quartermaster. Now, of course, when I think of quartermaster, I often think of um, the American Revolutionary War. I'm not sure why, but um, but more often than not, that's where I've come into um, the term uh, quartermaster quite a bit. But uh, quartermaster itself has uh, multiple meanings. 
but when I think of like in a time of war, a uh, quartermaster might uh, would have to pertain to uh, someone who um, whose duties would be comprised of providing uh, quarters, aka lodging, uh, rations, being food, clothing to other essentials. But on the waters, it would have centered around steering a ship to uh, plotting um, a course that the ship uh, would take in terms of um, direction, navigational direction route. Quartermaster Rowe felt the ship shake violently after colliding with the iceberg. And folks, the iceberg was so tall to where it stood roughly 60 feet above the water. So isn't this fair to say that this is no dinky little iceberg that the Titanic hit? Absolutely not. The fact that it's 60 feet above water, to me, that's very towering. At 1 a.m., Quartermaster Rowe sees a lifeboat filled only one-third to its maximum capacity get lowered on the starboard side. He contacts 4th Officer uh, Joseph Boxhall, whom advises George Rowe himself to report to the bridge right away and have distress rockets on hand. Mr. Rowe, or that is uh, George Rowe, got out 12 white rockets. In other words, the box that uh, Quartermaster George Rowe got out had 12 white rockets. And these aren't the type of rockets that you would be uh, using for... um, Well, in today's modern times, maybe you could use them for 4th of July uh, fireworks festivities in the United States, but in 1912, these um, rockets that we're going to be learning about here in just a brief second were not for uh, entertainment purposes. Besides being called distress rockets, what else made the rockets that um, Quartermaster George Rowe that he um, accessed, uh, what made those rockets unique? Well, the rockets aboard Titanic were known as socket distress signals, which meant they got built to be placed into a special made socket, which would uh, have the power to go about getting connected to something such as a railing where they got launched on the spot. And these rockets, folks, were made to fly as high as 800 feet and would ultimately burst into a shower of multiple white stars. So I cannot imagine watching a rocket or multiple rockets be launched as high as 800 feet into the sky on the night of April 15, 1912, and then they're bursting into a shower of multiple white stars. There has to be a reason for why they are being uh, burst into multiple white stars. And again, it's not for entertainment purposes. However, I'm beginning to wonder if the Californian could possibly be interpreting these um, rockets as something else. We'll find out here shortly, but as the old saying goes, sometimes looks are deceiving, and it's even looks can be deceiving even uh, from the not-so-far distance, or distant, rather, pardon me. Quartermaster Rowe uh, placed a socket distress sig- placed a socket distress signal rocket into the launching socket on the port bridge wing, and then struck a match to where the rocket itself went fast into the sky, and burst 
producing fiery white lights. <clears throat> At 1 a.m. April the 15th, 2nd Officer Herbert Stone of the Californian was stunned to see a large flash of white light above the ship not too far away. Shortly afterwards, a second white flash erupts, which allowed Stone himself to bet to better identify what he saw nearby. The white rocket exploding high above the mystery ship was sending out a cluster of white stars. In all, a total of five white rockets got launched. 30 minutes later at 1.30 a.m., 2nd Officer Stone goes to inform Captain Lord of what he saw on deck. Stone told Captain Lord twice. Now listen to this, folks. Second Officer Herbert Stone has told Captain Lord not once but twice that the ship to the south fired white rockets, given Lord himself on the first response thought right away that the rockets were company signals. You know, Stanley Lord's been out on the uh, out on the ocean waters, folks, for quite some time, what, maybe 15 years at most. And now all of a sudden he's starting to question an officer below him who has made more observations in the last 30 to 45 minutes since he uh, took over. And for Stanley Lord to question him, that's pretty uh, suspicious. I mean, Stanley Lord should know by now why white why in fact when a white when a rocket gets launched and there are white um stars or shower of white stars uh produced afterwards shouldn't captain stanley lord of all people know what that ought to indicate one would think but um we could be in for a real rude awakening here folks now i don't expect many of you all to know this one and that's fine but I'm going to um, tell you all some more about it because I didn't know anything about it myself until I read the book. It is fair to say that uh, regardless of what shipping line you're under, there are uh, rules along the waters that all captains and crew must abide by. Am I correct? I mean, people just can't navigate the waters freely at their own will and do whatever it is they intend to do. Um, without um, knowing what ramifications could lie in store if um, if the rules at sea are not adhered to or let alone abided by. So what we're going to be learning about with regards to uh, the international rules of the road is the following. Does Article 31 pertain to the governing convention for the use of signals at sea? Okay, we're uh, catching on to something here, folks. Article 31 there's a connection with regards to signals at sea, and wouldn't that pertain to what um, pertain to what Quartermaster George Rowe is uh, doing? You know, he's um, launching um, rockets um, into the air, and these are not just uh, leisure rockets for entertainment purposes. These rockets are meant to uh, call out a sign of distress that hey. Our ship is in trouble. We know that there is a ship out on the horizon, perhaps no more than 10 miles at most. And without these rockets, 
how is the ship in the distance going to know um, <clears throat> that we aboard the Titanic are in trouble? So these rockets, folks, are pretty revolutionary for their time. To think maybe a hundred years before 1912, I mean, yes, uh, the British had what were called Congreve rockets that were used in the War of 1812, which were very, very revolutionary for that time, because uh, given uh, prior to the War of 1812, there had been uh, really no such things as rockets being launched into the air like we know uh, today. So, yes, we already know that Article 31 does pertain to the Governing Convention for the Use of Signals at Sea. <coughs> Pardon me. Um, Article 31 is under the International Rules of the Road and was completely supported by the British Board of Trade. So, what does this article state per the following, and this is in quotations, folks, what is the importance behind Article 31? And again, this is in quotes. Rockets or shells throwing stars of any color or description fired one at a time at short intervals were to be regarded as a signal of distress. Distress, folks, at sea has one meaning and one meaning only. Somebody, somewhere, is about to die. It's pretty powerful, folks. I mean, I don't know how else you can interpret this. I mean, it's very concrete. It's very literal. It's down to the point. There's no, um, what do you call it, fudging the interpretation. But the bottom line is that when rockets or shells, throwing stars of any color or description, if they are fired one at a time at short intervals, that should get the attention of any other ship or clusters of ships that are nearby from the ship that is in um, trouble. If you see one of these rockets being fired, you better um, have your wireless operator on duty. The wireless operator needs to be able to, um, to uh, send a message and say, Hey, uh, Mr. Jones, what's going on with your ship? Can you tell me? Yes, our ship has hit an iceberg. We don't have a whole lot of time. We've only been given, say, two hours or less um, to stay afloat. We need help. This is, you know, and, and then, of course, op wireless operator Jones could say, hey, mayday, mayday, we're in help. Okay, and what would the Californian's wireless operator have been able to have done? He would have been able to have said, hey, I've got to go uh, tell the captain that you all are in trouble. But we, so this way we we can get to you all. But you know, Captain Stanley Lord, folks, uh, we might. I think we're gonna be. I've already said it before. I'm gonna say it again. I think we're gonna be in for a bit, for a real rude awakening. But anyways, with regards to um, Article Thirty One here, that when um, when these uh, rockets or shells were being fired one at a time at short intervals. Yes, that is a signal of distress, and to me, it can't be altered. Distress at sea has one meaning and one meaning only. There is a potential that somebody somewhere is about to die. It may not be a 100% likelihood, but there is a 50% chance or greater that somebody somewhere aboard their ship or people aboard a ship 
have the potential to die. Captain Lord did not directly accept Second Officer Stone's findings. Captain Lord himself is not even interested in the idea that perhaps something isn't right about the mystery ship not far away. And he's really not. He's not, he's not showing any sign of um, concern, folks. I mean, he didn't show any signs of interest nor concern into conducting an investigation as to why the mystery ship had launched multiple rockets in the sky, only for white starlights beaming brightly. It's almost as if it's almost as if all he's is thinking about is just himself. Captain Lord goes as far, folks, as not even bothering to wake up Cyril Evans, Californian's wireless operator, and if he had woken him up, guess what Cyril Evans would have been doing by now? He would have been setting up shop and communicating with the mystery ship's wireless operator. Captain Lord um, returned to the uh, chart room where he went about resuming his nap. Talk about being ignorant. The second and third officers, Herbert Stone and um, Victor Groves, continued making out observations of what lied nearby with regards to the shooting off of the rockets. Well, if this is causing uh, Californians' second and third officers' uh, concern, how about uh, Titanic's wireless operator Jack Phillips? What had bothered him deeply? Well, for one, Jack Phillips is under a lot of stress. If I was in his shoes, yeah, I'd be in a lot of, be facing a lot of stress knowing that my ship is, you know, got less than two hours left to live. He, um, you know, Jack Phillips. Um, so really, what had bothered him tremendously, even as the rockets got launched knowing he had spoken a few hours earlier to Cyril Evans, Californian's wireless operator, whom he had difficult conversations with given there had been unintended communication disruptions. In other words, Jack Phillips had been talking to the Frankfurt, the Frankfurt, I believe, and then um, Cyril Evans intervened to give um, wireless operator Phillips an ice warning. And Phillips had said, you're jamming me, you're jamming me, please knock it off. That, to me, is not the best form of communication. And that's when um, Cyril Evans, I think, just about had it. And he said you know, to himself, okay, I'm shutting off for the night, 11 o'clock. Remember, folks, in 1912, we don't have the 24-hour wireless communication system that is mandatory on all ships. I've said that a lot but we still need to be reminded of it because a tragedy is unfolding here you know here's one ship that um we learned from the previous podcast went segment that went above and beyond to go 58 miles from where she was southeast of Titanic only to come up short but yet she made the full scale effort we've got another ship that's no more than 10 miles away but i don't but but we can't blame the crew, that is the second and third officers. They are doing everything they can to make out an observation. The problem is that they've got a captain who is acting 
who's acting unprofessionally. Yes, there are some other words I would probably like to call Captain Stanley Lord, but it's not appropriate for me to be doing it over the um, during the podcast because um, you know there, there's a right way of describing one's actions even when they're inappropriate, but there's also the wrong way of doing it. So uh, me saying it over the um, headset uh, would not be a good thing. I could probably run the risk of losing some um, listeners, and I don't want to do that, especially with you all, my ardent, um, faithful, ardent uh, 101 podcast listeners. So, Captain Smith, along with Fourth Officer uh, Boxhall, Quartermaster uh, Rowe, were all frustrated by how close the ship nearby in the distance was, despite its lights on, but yet not coming to the aid of the sinking Titanic. Hey, I can't blame Captain Smith, 4th Officer Boxhall, along with Quartermaster Rowe. I can't blame them. They have every right to feel this way. After firing rocket number 7 into the sky, Stone, Herbert Stone and um, James Gibson, who was the apprentice officer of the Californian, they observed the mystery ship again and realized she looked very odd out of the water. Now, when, think about it, in 1912, if you were to say, when a ship looks odd out of the water, what does that mean? Could it mean that she's listing? That's one thing, yes. Could it mean that if she's looking out of the water, that perhaps her bow is is showing signs of um, coming out of the water due to... um, Flooding in multiple compartments and boiler rooms? Yeah, it is possible. It It's very possible now that what the Californian crew, that is 3rd Officer Victor uh, Groves, uh, Apprentice Officer James Gibson, and 2nd Officer Herbert Stone, what they are all witnessing now, the three of them are, they are witnessing Titanic coming out of the water. Um, Apprentice Officer Gibson thought she might be, um, including 3rd Officer Victor Groves, they both thought she might be listing. 2nd Officer Stone saw the red side light having disappeared. Californians bow now pointing eastward, meaning the mystery ship could only see the green side light. At 1.40 a.m., the 8th rocket was launched. Think about it. Quartermaster George Rowe, you know, he brought 12 rockets in the box. Eight are being used. Eight have already been used, folks, by 140. So when we do the math fraction-wise, that should tell us right there that um, two-thirds of the rockets have been used, meaning 67%. He's only got one-third left. And if nobody can come to the aid of Titanic given that Californians 10 miles or less away, and if those four rockets get used up, the only other thing that could probably be sent uh, out, they can try Morse lamp again. They could try um, lighting a flare. I don't know what all that could do within a 10-mile radius, but that's really all that's left. Very scary, to say the least. Officer Stone... In Groves knew something was terribly wrong, including Apprentice Officer James Gibson, 
They all knew something was terribly wrong with the mystery ship, given how many total rockets were already launched. At 2 a.m., 2nd Officer Stone sent 3rd Officer Victor Groves down to wake up Captain Lord. Captain Lord asked if all rockets were white. Why is Captain Lord so concerned about the color of the rockets? Well, 3rd Officer Groves said, Yes, Captain Lord, they all are white rockets. Captain Lord, folks, goes as far as being more concerned about the time. Okay, well, 3rd Officer Groves said, Okay, well, Captain Lord, it's uh, you know just after 2 a.m. What does Captain Lord do? He goes back to sleep. I can't imagine being 2nd uh, Officer Herbert Stone or 3rd Officer Victor Groves. You know, it's one thing to disagree, but how you go about disagreeing with an officer above you can either um, make or break your status aboard the ship itself to where you may no longer be considered an employee of the company. But in a crisis like this, it's very apparent that Captain Lord has been manipulative from the get-go. He was ve He's very autocratic. He is oppressive. He's self-centered. He's egotistical. This is all about him. He doesn't care about what's going on in the distance. And remember from a previous uh, podcast uh, segment how, uh, Cap how before he became Captain Stanley Lord, uh, Stanley Lord himself had applied to the White Star Line, and uh, the White Star Line told him that the best they could offer him was a third, third and fourth officer uh, position. Well, Lord didn't like that. He felt as though White Star had purposely snubbed him. I'm beginning to wonder if uh, Captain Stanley Lord has it out for the White Star Line. Does he, in fact, know that the ship nearby is, in fact, Titanic? Well, I'm, and I'm also wondering, did uh, wireless operator Cyril Evans advise Captain Lord that he had sent Titanic a message just before shutting down for the night? One has to wonder. So is it fair to say that before the morning hours after midnight of April 15, 1912, is it fair to say that, Ca that Captain Stanley Lord has known all along where Titanic's position was being 4146 degrees longitude north, 50.14 degrees latitude west. In my opinion, yes. He truly does know, but yet he doesn't want to do anything about it. At 2.20 a.m., 2nd Officer Herbert Stone tried seeing the mystery ship again, but her lights suddenly faded out entirely as Titanic began its final descent and this was no, this was no uh, gentle descent, folks. It was one that saw her stern swinging up into the sky. The ship's hull produced high, intense screeching sounds due to large amounts of stress internally for which the ship itself was never intended to handle. The bulkheads, the frames, hull plates all broke under heavy stress. The mass weight of the water filled the forward half of the ship as it started dragging the vessel down into a violent 
torrent, rage with no controls in sight. The hole gave way, leading the ship to split into two. So, folks, this ship didn't go down in one piece. This ship split in two. And there were survivors um, shortly after who were rescued who who did uh, confirm uh, during the board inquiries in the United States and in England that they did witness the ship split in two. Uh, one survivor who had the most vivid and graphic images of watching the ship split in two, she was only seven years old, and she died in 1996. Her name was Ava Hart. I have uh, watched some documentaries on her um, on her um, testimony or on her um, interviews about what she witnessed on the night of April 15, 1912. She said it was one of the most horrifying things she ever saw, watching the ship split. She was an only child. Her um, father never got the chance to make it aboard um, a lifeboat. He oversaw to it that his wife and Ava um, made it on one, but he lost his life. Uh, Ava Hart uh, lived to be um, about 90 years old, but she by far had the uh, most powerful uh, recollection of, of how the Titanic split. Obviously, and it's fair to say, that, yes, there were others who survived that had uh, recollections as well. But just keep in mind, this ship did not go down in one piece. At 2.40 a.m., uh, Second Officer Stone informed Captain Lord that the ship, from a distance, had fallen out of sight. Captain Lord once again asked about the rockets with her Second Officer Stone, saying, there, Stone said, well, they're only white ones. Lord told Stone to record white rockets in his journal, and afterwards Lord went back to sleep. Stanley Lord, folks, under his watch, allowed for a disaster to occur. I mean, yes, the Titanic already hit an iceberg, but he, he knew that the ship was in trouble. He knew deep down what, what white rockets themselves represented, but yet he didn't have the decency... Or the, or the courage to let his crew below him do what they needed to do to come to the um, rescue of the mystery ship. Yes, uh, historians have dubbed the Californian as the mystery ship, but in the eyes of the Californian, most notably with Captain Lord, the ship five to six miles away being the Titanic, to him is the mystery ship. So on each end, the mystery... The Titanic was the mystery ship to the Californian, and for the Titanic, the Californian was the mystery ship on its end. At 3.30 a.m., uh, James Gibson, a Californian apprentice officer, spotted another rocket coming from the south, southeasterly direction. Further than the previous rocket, than the previous rockets, the second and third rockets fired shortly after, the rockets being fired were company signals, not white rockets as previously seen. George Stewart, the chief officer of the Californian whom replaces Herbert Stone, was advised by Stone of the night's events being a mystery ship, eight white rockets, the ship slowly vanishing, notifying Captain Lord of the events 
three separate instances. Stewart asked Captain Lord about the ship firing rockets from the southwest, being that of the Titanic, but Lord was more focused on the steamer from the southeast, which was Carpathia. Prior to 6 a.m., Chief Officer Stewart awakens Cyril Evans to get him up and running. If I, you know, I, I, I can't blame Second Officer Herbert Stone for doing everything he did. He made a very, very valiant effort. He, he advised Captain Lord three instances. I mean, he kept a thorough record of things, of what he saw. But if there was one thing, if I was in Second Officer Herbert Stone's shoes, and yes, this may have been considered a breach of protocol, but if, it had been, but if I had been Second Officer Herbert Stone, what would I have done? Even if it meant perhaps jeopardizing my uh, position with uh, the Leland line, which is what Californian was under, I would have gone and awoken wireless operator Evans and said, look, you need to get up. You need to get back. You need to uh, resume your duties. I'm sorry to have to wake you up under the circumstances, but there is a ship in the distance that appears to be in trouble. Um, it's it looks out of sync. That's what I would have done. But that's me. But I think most of us, given what we've learned over time with the Titanic and what has uh, transpired in the hours after midnight of April 15, 1912, I think we now can have a better, clear understanding of the uh, communication issues, uh, protocol uh, between uh, relations amongst uh, crew and captain. Yes, many of us would still like to believe that what happened to the Titanic was an isolated incident in terms of um, bad luck, um, not respecting Mother Nature. While all that is true, the sad part is, is that had there been a law in effect and prior to April of 1912, where it was mandatory, where all ships had to have their wireless operations on 24 hours, I do believe that this tragedy might have been averted, and that if that if the Californian hadn't come, that perhaps another ship would have been somewhere enough nearby to have uh, come to the rescue. One only has to wonder. Uh, shortly after Cyril Evans got back up and running on his headset, what news did he receive from the Frankfurt? The Frankfurt had advised Cyril Evans that Titanic had sunk during the night as a result of striking an iceberg. Cyril Evans got, also got confirmation of Titanic sinking from Virginian, who was the last ship to have received a CQD message from the Titanic minutes before she ultimately vanished. Evans noted, wrote down Titanic's position of where she hit the iceberg and sank, being 41.46 degrees longitude north, 50.14 degrees latitude west. Evans took um, the communication responses from both the Frankfurt and Virginian and wrote them into formal messages, into a formal message rather, to give to Captain Lord. <laughs> I'm laughing, it's not funny folks, but... Um, but I, I just have to say, Captain Lord, for starters, is is an absolute idiot. He really is. 
And this is a case, sadly, where one could say, well, you know, you can't legislate stupidity. Stupidity on the case of uh, Captain Stanley Lord. So for Cyril Evans and um, Chief Officer Stewart, they each had the same identical position findings of where Titanic had messaged for help. Both men ran quickly up the stairs to the bridge, shouting out to Captain Lord that, that a ship did in fact go down. This one, folks, uh, is the straw that breaks the camel's back. Not that the other remarks that Stanley Lord has made raise red flags. This one, though, folks, is the icing on the cake in terms of the straw that breaks the camel's back. Captain Lord looked at the position, or the position, yeah, the position that was uh, provided to him by uh, Chief Officer Stewart and Cyril Evans, shook his head in pure disbelief, only to say this in quotations, folks, you must get me a better position than this. Lord's comments, folks, are odd, ridiculous, frightening. Not one ounce of sadness, not one ounce of heartbreak. This man really, to me, has no business being a captain, but yet he is. Did another ship... Uh, come further and hoping to reach Titanic besides Carpathia, whom came 58 miles uh, southeast. Uh, believe it or not, folks, another ship did come uh, in search. The, that ship's name was the Mount Temple. I did not know, uh, as a matter of fact, I, I myself didn't know that there was another ship that had uh, come to uh, reach Titanic other than Carpathia, and that being the Mount Temple. She was further than Carpathia. Uh, Mount Temple was about 100 miles southwest from where Titanic had, positioned, had been positioned. So here we have, folks, Carpathia, 58 miles southeast. Mount Temple, 100 miles southwest. And here the Californian, thanks to the ignorance of Stanley Lord, Captain Stanley Lord, his ship being 10 miles away at most, could have come to the aid and rescued perhaps another 300 passengers or perhaps above 300 passengers. And when we learn, when we get into the inquiry um, segments, we're going to find out just how many lifeboats Californian had and what that could have equated to in terms of how many other passengers could have been saved. Had Captain Stanley Lord used his time wisely, which he didn't. James Moore, who was Mount Temple's captain, faced no obstacles in arriving to the scene where Titanic's lifeboats were already being recovered by Carpathia per position uh, coordinates of 41.46 degrees longitude north, 50.14 degrees latitude west. Captain Stanley Lord's remark of, you must get me a better position than this, indicates that Lord himself knew deep down inside what had transpired just before Titanic sank, given multiple rockets were launched as a means for help, ship in distress. For Stanley Lord himself, what he wanted, in terms of the phrase that he said, you must give me a better position than this, what he, was, what he wanted to refer to in terms of better, better position was one that could be categorized as to, as to have the Titanic be placed well out of Californians' means of reach. 
In other words, if, Cal if Titanic was well out of Californians' means or reach, for Captain Stanley Lord, it could be seen, it could be, it could help, it could help his um, innocence be a little bit more relevant in that, oh, the ship was well out of my reach, and so therefore my inactivity could still be upheld. Good luck when the time comes for the inquiries. Stanley Lord knew very well where, in fact, Titanic was located, per her coordinates, and that she was nearby, ten miles or less, to where the white rockets were clearly seen, but he ignored every request or concern per the officers and wireless operators whom knew the real truth. I almost have to wonder, too, is, in fact, Captain Stanley Lord a crab in a barrel? Think about it. He's a captain, but is he acting like a crab in a barrel? Yes. He doesn't want to see crewmen below him who work for him do well at their job. If he really took an interest in his crewmen, given the circumstances they were under, then he would. Then Captain Lord himself would have taken the, the initiative to to have said, "Okay, uh, Second Officer Stone, Third Officer Groves, thank you for giving me these findings. Thank you for being vigilant and spotting those white rockets being launched into the air. Let's go. Both of you go get um. Get the wireless operator up, wake him up, and <clears throat> tell him that yes, we're sorry about the circumstances, but get him up." and get him to his um, booth where he needs to be. I will start um, doing what, what needs to be done so that we can uh, get to this ship. Nope, that is not Stanley Lord. It's all about Stanley Lord and nobody else below him. I would, I would have felt terrible working for Stanley Lord, especially on that night. But at the same time, as I've said before, being second officer Herbert Stone and third officer Victor Groves, uh, the chief officer as well, uh, being uh, chief officer um, Stewart, I have to give them all the credit in the world for doing everything that there was to their avail. They did everything that was right. It was their captain that betrayed them. The Captain Lord betrayed their trust. By the time Captain Lord uh, figured out what had taken place, which steamer from the southeast had already begun its rescue mission? <laughs> That's easy, Carpathia. She was picking up um, Titanic survivors uh, per their lifeboats. Captain Lord took the Californian into the ice field where she, she would be led into position of where the Titanic sank Cyril Evans, the wireless operator, spotted or determined the first signs of just how close Californian was to Titanic before and when she sank prior before and when she sank. Prior to 6:30 a.m., the Californian stood seven miles, which was the visual distance from the wreck site. The proof stems from Evans's being able to identify Carpathia. The information coming only from the bridge, Captain Lord himself. At 8.30 a.m. April the 15th, Californian was just a few hundred yards away from Carpathia, and shortly afterwards an exchange of flag signals took place between both ships, but there remained an ever-growing wireless um, 
traffic communication um, matters, which put a halt for the captains and crew to speak with one another, and perhaps that was probably a good thing, because the last thing Carpathia Captain Arthur Rostron needs to be dealing with, he doesn't need to be dealing, dealing with Captain Stanley Lord. He's going to probably find out here soon just how ignorant Captain Lord was, but Captain Rostron has to um, keep himself under calm because the bigger task before him is making sure that all of Titanic's passengers who were rescued get aboard his ship and get the proper care and attention they need. So uh, Carpathia under Captain Rostron decided to go, decides to go straight for New York, whereas the Californian will stay behind to search for survivors. <laughs> so here now, Captain Lord's trying to cover his butt, and now he's trying to say, well, let me go look for survivors. This way, when I um, get to my final destination, I can tell those people that I went above and beyond to try to look for survivors. Yeah, right. You're just doing all of this for show and to cover yourself, when in fact, the, the people who served below you know what a real fool you were the entire time. Large pieces of reddish cork from Titanic's ruptured bulkheads, life belts, rugs, bits, uh, clothing fragments, abandoned lifeboats to, uh, were all spotted. They were floating around well after the ship sank. Captain Lord later would say he never found any bodies, but yet the water itself was filled with many of them, and in the days after April 15th, multiple liners confirmed seeing bodies from single ones to others in group clusters not far away based upon where Titanic herself sunk. I tell you, Captain Stanley Lord, I, he really just has no business being out on the water. And don't think for one second that if his ship had struck an iceberg, don't think for one second he would have wanted uh, some other ships out in the near distance to have come to his aid. One would hope. But who knows? Who knows how Captain Stanley Lord might have handled himself in a situation had his ship struck an iceberg. One only has to wonder. The search conducted by Captain Lord uh, w was not effective. That's a no-brainer, but then again, Captain Lord himself did something even more unthinkable. Pay very careful attention here, folks. He deliberately altered his officer's remarks per the log journal. In other words, 3rd Officer Victor Groves noted that the search ended at 10.30 a.m., Captain Lord fudged it by saying it went on until 11.40 a.m. Captain Lord's version about many things that went on got placed into the journal, but nothing ever mentioned by the officers whom spotted the white rockets in the hours after midnight of April 15, 1912. Captain Lord, folks, has committed several egregious acts. And for those of you who don't know what egregious means, it's inappropriate. I mean, that's just the start. Captain Lord, Captain Stanley Lord, to me, has betrayed... He has betrayed his own crew. He has... Um, 
how do you call it? He has um, he's caused he's created a lot of distrust. He has violated all kinds of. Um, if there's one thing he's violated on the waters, he violated Article 31. He didn't um, value what the true uh, interpretation of um, with regards to uh, rockets and shells. He purposely um, failed to um, understand what the signal of distress was all about, you know, distress at sea, one meaning, one meaning only, somebody somewhere is about to die. It just didn't mean anything to this guy. And, and the sad thing is, is that even in today's work world, regardless of profession, there are people out there who, who violate the rules, and yet they somehow get away. I'm not trying to sound political, folks, but even in 1912, we should be reminded that there were people in um, some of the most um, respectable of professions, and considering when one had the, had the rank of captain, they were, they, were the, they were the attention of everyone else, especially like, say, Captain Edward J. Smith of the Titanic. Uh, First-class passengers revered him, and given that Titanic and Olympic were the newest of the White Star um, Liners uh, luxury line ships, those passengers wanted to book, uh, where, wanted to be on his ships wherever he uh, was going in terms of commanding. But for Captain Lord, uh, this is um, beyond unforgivable. I mean, this is um, what he did, to me, represents the, the most... Um, egregious of conduct along the waters it represents everything that a captain should not be and i have to wonder when when captain lord goes before hearings in the united states and overseas in england what kind of punishments could they uh, dole out for him what could the leland line do to this guy well we will have to figure that out in uh, somewhere down the road here soon what I do know is that we have um, finished this uh, segment, and I look forward to being back on the air again soon with all of you. And we've covered a lot of ground, and I'm sure many of, many of you are probably blown away by what you have learned about Captain Stanley Lord. And I'm sure most of you probably knew, knew of him before and knew that there was a presence of a mystery ship that could have come to the aid of Titanic. But what many of us probably didn't know, and I myself didn't know until I read this book, was that Captain Lord's crew, being 2nd Officer Herbert Stone and 3rd Officer Victor Groves, Apprentice Officer James Gibson, Chief Officer Stewart, they all did their work. They all should be exonerated, in my opinion, but yet their captain betrayed them. He betrayed their, his crew in a time of need when... Everybody needed to be on the same page, and yet the captain chose not to. To me, Captain Lord's conduct represents something called ignorance. Not just ignorance, but ignorance is bliss. It's one thing to be ignorant, but to enjoy being ignorant and not having any remorse for your, for your acts of ignorance. What does that say about you as an individual? Well, the individual's cold-hearted, has no remorse for anything. It's, it's almost as if everything's a joke. For Captain Lord, that's how I best describe him. 
Well, thank you for your time as always. I look forward to being back on the air with you all and wherever you all may live, continue to stay safe. Take care for now and thank you for being such ardent listeners.